This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. And I'm Ryan Warner. Here's a connection that's not immediately obvious. Some places have seen a rise in sex trafficking because of climate change. Just one example of trends with global warming that disproportionately affect women. Trends Dr. Cecilia Sorensen is watching closely. She's an emergency physician at the University of Colorado Hospital. She studies vulnerable populations abroad and at home. And she listed a few more examples of how health and climate are connected. What we're seeing is higher rates of cardiovascular disease, for example, in the aftermath of wildfires, which result from drought. We're seeing uh, more instances of waterborne disease resulting from floods. We're seeing more traumatic injuries. Okay, heart disease and fires is another connection that would not be immediately apparent. But to this sex trafficking idea, put that into some context for us. Sure. So we know that as a result of environmental change, such as drought and food insecurity and disasters, that people are forced to migrate. Now, of the refugees that are currently in a refugee status worldwide, over 80 percent of them are women. And so we know that when women are forced to migrate, they become incredibly vulnerable to all different types of circumstances, including sex trafficking, including violence against them. Hmm. And that's what we're worried about. In a way, you have climate refugees. You have people who are forced from a place because of the weather, because of a natural disaster. Where are we seeing a rise in sex trafficking as a result of that kind of mobility? Well, I think it could be being seen in many places. And the problem is that it's highly underreported. When refugees are on the move, there is not good health care surveillance. So, for example, I was recently on the border of Syria, and we were providing medical care in a refugee camp. And I was there providing OB-GYN care, emergent OB-GYN care. And the rates of sexually transmitted diseases were off the charts. And the women didn't even know they had them. Do you think that specifically speaks to that rise in sex trafficking? I think it potentially could. And it's difficult to know exactly where sex trafficking is happening. But we know that there's tons of literature looking at how when there's natural resource scarcity, women will exchange sex in return for resources. And it's Uh. been documented most in East Africa around Lake Victoria, where there's this exchange of fish, which is, you know, the local commodity for sex. You have to imagine that people are in a kind of survival mode in a refugee camp. Right. And as a woman, that's kind of the last thing you have to to give, essentially, which is which is terrible. You said that so many of of the refugees are women. Why is that? And and that speaks to the disproportionality in this. What we noticed in the camps is that uh, there were a lot of women. And then the question was, where are the men? And a lot of the men were doing migrant work in other parts of the country. So they were just taking opportunistic work, for example, in mines. Also, when people are forced to migrate, men tend to have more education. And so they have more opportunities to move towards places where there are economic opportunities, whereas women who don't have training can't necessarily move into a place to get a job. Fascinating. Okay, so this idea of heart attacks and fires that you mentioned earlier, let's talk about that. What we see with forest fires is that, you know, every fire is different to begin with, um, depending on what's being burned. So you're talking about burning wood, but you're also talking about burning plastics and potentially industrial waste and all types of toxins get into the air. And we breathe that in. I mean, I think of all of the homes that were destroyed in California and everything that was in them burning. 
Exactly. And these materials are not meant to be burned. And we don't know what the toxicologic profiles of them are once they're burned. But the idea is that people are breathing that? Exactly. People are breathing them in. And if particles are small enough, they cross over from the lungs into the bloodstream where they cause inflammation in blood vessels. And inflammation, just think about it as it's irritating blood vessels. And when it irritates the blood vessels of your heart, those are the conditions which lead to things like heart attacks. And in your brain, that's what leads to strokes. Gosh, this is fascinating, the connections that you're making for us. And so the idea is if under climate change, things get drier and warmer and fires get more intense, that's going to have a direct impact on heart health. Is that disproportional towards women as well? Or does that affect men and women in the same way? Well, that's a really great question. There's been some studies which show that the effects of poor air quality tend to affect women more. Why is that? One of the reasons is basic sort of geometry. And so whenever you breathe in, say, you know, a bolus or a a breath of air, uh, there's all types of particles in it. What was the word? Bolus? Bolus. It's it's a medical jargon word. Oh, okay. I love new terms. Bolus, but a breath of air. A breath of air. But basically, depending on your size and shape and the diameter of your airways, it will distribute in different places. And we know that in women, for some reason, because of where it distributes, it tends to accumulate more. And Mm. women, when subjected to particulate matter, their arteries get more inflamed than do their male counterparts. How attuned is... Like the international community and NGOs that work in play, how attuned are they to, one, these vulnerabilities, and two, to how they might be disproportionately affecting some communities? Well, I think we're seeing a rise in awareness of this issue, honestly. Within the UN, with the recent sort of climate negotiations going on, there is a initiative to do what's called gender mainstreaming, which is to incorporate gender goals and gender outcomes into all implementation of development projects. So an inherent awareness that this affects men and women differently. That's correct. And so what we see is, you know, there's awareness at the top, and we also see a lot of grassroots awareness. So we see, for example, NGOs getting together with female farmers in parts of India and sort of helping them to co-op, helping them to grow diverse crops and install better irrigation systems to protect against drought. So we see it at the grassroots level, and we see it at the really high levels. I think we're kind of missing it in the middle. What does that look like? What, what's missing then? I think it's cities and towns. For example, Denver, we have a climate action plan. Is there anything in there about women's vulnerabilities? I'm not sure there is. Has anyone thought about it? For example, when we look at disaster plans, uh, so if there was to be a huge hurricane somewhere, are there shelters which are gender specific um, so women have a safe place to go? Are there economic opportunities in the aftermath of disasters that are made accessible to women given their skill sets? Because we know that women after disasters suffer from more stagnated economic recovery than do men. Men recover faster. They recover faster. And women are more affected. Of course, naturally, I think about the difference of of women's standing in a society from country to country. So you, you would have additional layers of difficulty in a place where women aren't supposed to be uh, independent, where the idea of a woman being a, a, apart from her husband is looked down upon. Oh, you're completely right. That's huge complications. So, for example, in Bangladesh, after Cyclone Nargis, there was 140,000 people who died, and 90% of them are women. 
And so when people went back in and sort of did analysis as to what happened, one was that women are not supposed to be out of their house unaccompanied. And a lot of the public service messaging that was going around warning people was happening in the marketplaces where women aren't really supposed to be. So they didn't even get the news. They didn't get the news. And another thing in places in this this part of the world is that women tend to speak minority dialects. They don't speak the mainstream language necessarily. And so maybe the messages aren't even a language they can understand. Then there's also cultural taboo about women being seen on the streets unaccompanied by male relatives. And so women were afraid to leave on their own. In other words, they were so afraid of of that societal norm that they failed to evacuate in the face of a disaster. I mean, it seems unimaginable, but I tend to notice that when there are disasters, people tend to default to some kind of... Uh, Gosh, almost comfort. Comfort. Something they know. Something they know. How, how should you respond? I mean, it's a completely unknowable, traumatic situation, and people tend to default to their innate programming, which is don't leave the house without your male relatives. And so they stayed. I, 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 it's, it's so hard to imagine not being there and not being from that part of the world. But, but it speaks to the need for that tailor-made messaging, for that cultural sensitivity and the awareness of gender. What else are you interested in researching in this arena? (laughs) I mean, there's so many things. Where I've been dedicating a lot of efforts right now is as a clinician is trying to get healthcare providers aware of this and trying to mobilize the medical community. Because, first of all, healthcare providers are on the front lines of, of seeing these types of health impacts. And second of all, I think they're trusted messengers and they can use what we call white coat diplomacy to sort of bring this message to people who need to hear it. And so this spring at the University of Colorado, I'm directing a course called Climate Medicine. There's a huge interest in this generation of wanting to know this stuff are going to take this course. Climate medicine. Yeah. What's one thing you'll study that uh, we haven't addressed? We'll be studying the impacts of water insecurity on women's health. Thanks for sharing this with us. Really fascinating. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Dr. Cecilia Sorensen is an emergency physician at the University of Colorado Hospital and a fellow at the CU Anschutz Medical Campus. She studies populations vulnerable to climate change. Bark beetles continue to devastate Colorado's forests, and the damage could get worse with climate change. Each year, the state tracks the problem by flying over all 24 million acres of forested land. Dan West is an entomologist with the State Forest Service and joins in on these flyovers. And Dan, welcome to the show. Good morning. Now, just to get the lay of the land or the forest, um, there are different kinds of beetles that attack different kinds of trees. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So they're all closely related. But um, yeah, we have the mountain pine beetle that attacks most of our pine forests, which are lower in elevation where a lot of our population centers are, where, you know, many of us are now moving to and living in. And then we also have um, bark beetles that attack high elevation Engelmann spruce fir um, forests or predominantly Engelmann spruce, um, in the highest elevations that stretch from about 9,500 feet of elevation all the way up into where there are no trees. Okay. And what did you see this past year with all these different beetles? Well, in the state of Colorado, um, we've had an outbreak of spruce beetle in our highest elevation Engelmann type um, that has persisted pretty much all the way back in through 2002. What we saw from um, the spruce beetle, uh, it has attacked, uh, it's actively affecting 178,000 acres of Engelman spruce forest in Colorado. Wow. And to put that into perspective, yeah, over the, since the year 2000, it has moved through 1.84 million acres of 
high elevation Ingleman spruce type in Colorado. And so, you know, what does that mean? Well, in Colorado, we have about 4.5 million acres of Ingleman spruce type here. So, you know, the math adds up that we're, we've seen about 40% of our spruce fir type that's been affected by the spruce beetle alone. 40%. When we put that in, yeah. And when we put that into perspective with mountain pine beetle that was active from about 1996 through 2014, um, spruce beetle, uh, um, you know, has certainly made its impact after the mountain pine beetle, but uh, my, mountain pine beetle moved through 3.4 million acres when we really only have about 4.1 million acres of total ponderosa and lodgepole pine type. So that's 81%. So um, we're really seeing kind of a one-two punch. Um, first mountain pine beetle in the early 1990s all the way through um, about 2014, and now we're, we've seen continued sustained attack um, by spruce beetle. So in terms of this past year, how does the damage compare to years past? Well, we've seen it um, deplete some of the resources. And so the way that these bark beetles work is they um, they live and develop under the bark of these trees. And so they kill that tree typically in one year. And once they um, make their full development in either one or two years, then they have to fly to a new green tree. And this past year, really what we've seen is that we've seen it move out of some areas where it's kind of um, been persisting for a number of years, and it's now starting to move into previously unaffected areas or areas that um, are kind of new to the spruce beetle. Mm. And we've seen that now for a number of years now. Actually, for four consecutive years, we've seen it move out of areas um, where it was intensifying into new areas so that it has new green trees to attack. So where would we see that uh, where we haven't seen it before around the state? Oh, well, so we've really got two different outbreaks of spruce beetle, one that's kind of centered around Rocky Mountain National Park right now. And so um, anybody driving up and over Trail Ridge Road will certainly see the effects of spruce beetle and um, it moving into new areas. Um, The other outbreak that has started in the San Juan Mountains, which is kind of in the south central part of Colorado, we've now seen that concentrically move out since 2004 consuming new acres and moving north north into the um, Gore Valley um, moving up in towards the Aspen area, Vale Valley, um, the I-70 corridor is really where we're starting to see that kind of continue to move. And other ways that this past year compares to years past? Well, we've, um, you know, this past year was uh, really significant when we really think about precipitation and temperature. And bark beetle populations are really closely tied to really um, precipitation levels because trees defend themselves with water. And they do that by turning that water into resin, and those resins actually serve to push the bark beetles out of these trees. And when we really have warm temperatures, so according to um, NOAA, last year, you know, for the water year, which runs from October through September, we saw the warmest on record um, that we've had in 124 years, dating back to 1895. And we actually had the second driest water year Um, in that same time period. And so really what that means is that we have a a vast array of trees across our landscape that are sitting there with their defenses that are somewhat reduced. And so we see these bark beetles continuing to move into susceptible trees um, by and large because of stand conditions, but also because of this environmental window that has allowed these bark beetles to persist. And this really speaks to climate change. Oh, yeah. It really does. These bark beetles are really closely tied, again, to to how these drought events and temperature events occur. And when we look back at mountain pine beetle, 
Um, we used to in, you know, prior to 1980s, um, we used to have cold temperatures during the middle of the winter that allowed these um, bark beetles to die off some in the middle of the winter. We haven't seen cold temperatures that are cold enough to kill these bark beetles since 1985 in the state of Colorado. So um, temperature alone is one of the stories, as well as, again, precipitation that allows these trees to defend themselves. What does the damage look like when you're flying over these areas? It kind of depends on where you are, but in the areas where it's where these bark beetles are moving into new acres, um, you see a faded tree, which basically is just a fancy way of saying that it no longer looks that kind of vibrant green. It turns to either an off yellowish color or kind of a an off greenish color or maybe even a rust color. Mm. Um, a couple of years after the bark beetles have been there, the needles all fall off and you basically just see a, a gray forest. Hmm. What yeah, can, so miles and miles of that is really what we see when we're flying over some of these areas. Um, and can you talk about the long-term impact of all of this? What does this mean, you know, for Colorado? Yeah, it really touches everybody every day. Um, from the air that we breathe to the water that we drink to the recreation values that we have um, and the intrinsic value of just having our forest ecosystems there. When you think about a lot of the water that, um, you know, flows down into the much of the southwest part of the United States, all initiates or generates right here in the state of Colorado. And we certainly know that these bark beetle events cause the snowpack to come off earlier, sometimes two to three weeks earlier, because the forest canopy is no longer shading that snowpack. The sun's able to penetrate down into that snowpack. The snow comes off earlier, which means that there's issues for retention and capturing that water in a in a you know different event or a much earlier event or perhaps in a much shorter time frame. And then not only that, but that allows for some of the grasses and forbs that are in the forest floor to green up and cure up earlier, which means that there's implications for wildland fire later on in the season. So we're actually seeing, um, you know, the fuel structure change in our forest ecosystems and which has, again, impacts for um, wildfires that come through, which then, you know, of course, um, on the on the heels of such a big fire season, we certainly know what um, just the fire effects can do themselves, but the after effects of erosion and um, all of the other effects that we're dealing with um, after fires certainly play an impact for everybody that, that lives in Colorado. So solutions, what can be done to slow it down? Are there things that can help? Yeah, um, great question. We do have certainly some tools in our toolbox that we can use for individual tree protection. Um, it's kind of a bit of a Band-Aid that allows us to span a bit of a time um, so some of those are chemical treatments and some of those are using some of the biology against the bark beetles themselves to disrupt their communication. Um, but that really isn't feasible on a forest wide landscape. Really what we need to do is, um, reduce some of the volume. Um, our forests are, um, heavily stocked with overly mature trees oftentimes because we've, um, basically changed the disturbance regime in a lot of our forest ecosystems. And in part that's due to, some fire exclusion, but it's also due to some climate issues as well. So, um, you know, we can get in and we can do some forest management activities of reducing some of that volume, reducing some of the trees per acre that are out there, which has multitude of, of effects. You know, it reduces our, our threat of wildland fire coming through and the effects of those fires. It disrupts some of the bark beetle communication. These bark beetles don't fly very well, so they certainly... Um, don't like these um, light open stands. And not only that, but it disrupts the chemical communication between bark beetles. They talk to one another using chemicals. And when we open up our stands and reduce some of the trees that are out there, it allows, um, you know, the wind patterns to kind of move through these stands and it disrupts a little bit of their communication. So it makes it harder for them to find one another. Dan, thanks so much for joining us. 
Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Dan West is an entomologist with the State Forest Service. He gave us an update about the bark beetles' continuing devastation in Colorado's forests. Now, let's answer a question we got through our Colorado Wonders Project. A listener asks, what percent of Coloradans are native, born and brought up in Colorado? We asked state demographer Elizabeth Garner to crunch the numbers. The short answer, 47 percent of the population in Colorado is native. Really, it's amazing how dependent we actually are on non-natives in the state. In fact, as native states go, Colorado's never been a big one. Maybe that's why people who are natives can be seen bragging about it with bumper stickers. You can go back into the 1800s and when the gold rush came, and it's not that those were native Coloradoans. (laughs) They were coming from the east. The most recent data from the American Community Survey in 2017 shows 43 other states have more natives than Colorado. I think the western U.S. tends to be a lot less native because uh, it was slower to develop, and so you had people moving in from other parts of the country. And, you know, I don't think it's a positive or negative type of statement if something is more or less native. I think it really just really describes what's going on in that community. Because even if you look within Colorado, we've got a disparity between One of our counties is at 78% native, all the way down to 24% native. And so even within the state, we've got this huge difference. And a lot of it really has to do with opportunities and what kind of changes are occurring in a community. It seems most of our Eastern Plains counties are the most native. They're very tied to the agricultural industry. And that's not necessarily an industry that's really easy to get in and out of. It's very capital-intensive, land-intensive. Kind of our more tourist counties tend to be the least native. Conejos County is the most native. Hinsdale County is the least native. Both are in the southwest part of Colorado. We should note the data does not say if someone was brought up in Colorado, only if they were born here and currently live here. Our thanks to state demographer Elizabeth Garner for helping us answer this Colorado Wonders question. So what do you wonder about? Go to CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders and let us know. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. My home is Colorado With her proud mountains tall Next week, Pueblo will join a select group of Colorado cities. It will become the third city in the state to be run by what's known as a strong mayor, following Denver and Colorado Springs. In other Colorado cities and towns, a lot of that power is in the hands of an unelected official. CPR Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce is following the race, and he's here in the studio. Hi, Dan. Hi, Andrea. What is a quote, strong mayor, and how is it different from how Pueblo's current gov- uh, government is run? Yeah, okay. Well, first off, I, I do want to say a lot of this stuff is going to sound a bit in the weedsy, okay. a little wonky, but this really does make a big difference on the ground at how a local government works. Okay. Right now, Pueblo has a city council, city manager form of government, where the city manager is an apolitical position. 
executes the will of the city council. The city manager is hired by the city council, serves at their pleasure kind of Not thing. elected. Right. And in this strong mayor form of government, citizens themselves elect the mayor and the mayor replaces the city manager. And this person is much more of a, a political leader, a, an out in front executive like, say, a governor or a president. And the mayor has much more power over decision making and really sets the agenda for the town. And it's the first time Pueblo will have a mayor, though, Andrea, it won't be the city's first mayor. Oh, why is that? <laughs> well, it, it it depends on how you define all this. Uh, how's that for staying out of the weeds? I'll get back to it in a second. Um, but what's interesting is this will actually be Pueblo's sixth form of government, six different governments dating back to 1870. Wow. They've had it all, Andrea. They've had weak mayors and aldermen and okay. city commissions and city council. It's 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 run the gamut. And um, so I heard about all of this uh, earlier this week from retired district judge Bob Ogburn. He wrote a piece recently for the Pueblo County Historical Society about these different government structures. And each one represents a panacea for all the previous shortcomings of the previous administrations, uh, and somehow the panacea turns into a problem for the next panacea to solve. He's fired up about this stuff, Andrea. Uh, so Pueblo did have a city council member who went by the name mayor in the early 1950s, but Ogburn really wanted to stress he didn't want people to confuse that with a proper mayor. He says it was a largely ceremonial name. It was not a separate executive, and this mayor was not elected by the citizens of Pueblo and also wasn't even full-time. They were simply given the title after their peers elected them president of the city council. So we heard in that tape from Judge Ogburn that each change in government was seen at the time as a sort of cure-all for Pueblo's political troubles. What's the problem the city hopes it's solving right now? Well, uh, I've been walking around downtown Pueblo, and uh, when I've done so, I've heard many of the same sentiments, uh, like from resident uh, Bill Genovese. I know we haven't been business-friendly. We need more jobs in Pueblo. You know, all the rest of the country's growing. We're over here kind of stagnated. And this is true. While a lot of other front range communities like the Denver metro area, Colorado Springs, they've grown a lot in the recovery from the Great Recession. Pueblo really hasn't. It's been much more flat. It left behind in a certain sense. There's been sort of a floundering in the manufacturing sector the community has historically relied on. And the hope is putting more power into one leader with a clear vision will help uh, bump that up. And and also when I talk to people there, they're mad about Potholes. They're always mad about potholes, too. Who decided now's the time to switch to this strong mayor system of government? This was also the citizens of Pueblo in 2017. And here's the thing with all this. There are a lot of advantages to a city manager uh, because most of the responsibilities of a local government, especially a smaller one, they're they're sort of they're they're mundane, really. They're super important. You know, it's like keeping the sewers working and making sure the sidewalks are up to snuff and keeping tabs on all the city employees. But I, I guess what I mean is it's it's administrative mm-hmm. and it can be really beneficial to have a trained, educated and neutral administrator handling all of that. But as a community grows and you can make an argument whether Pueblo at a little over 100,000 people is the right size for this. But as a community grows and it has more competing priorities, it can be helpful 
and even refreshing to have a strong executive who says, these are our priorities. This is the direction we're moving. And for Pueblo residents, they said, hey, that's that's what we're looking for now. Okay, so tell us about the two candidates. I understand they're, they were the highest vote getters out of a very large field last fall. Right. So this is a runoff. Two finalists chosen from 16 Candidates, uh, voters voted on back in November and who's left are attorney Nick Gratishar. He's a member of the local water board and he used to run the local Democratic Party. He got uh, a little over 13 percent of the vote in the fall. He hammers on economic development as a way to help address the city's problem with homelessness and opioid addiction. And then we have uh, Steve Naraki. He's a former city council president who runs a nonprofit for the community's senior citizens. He got just over 12% in November. And he listed as a campaign priority um, a marketing push, a full rebranding of the city as a gateway to the Southwest. And um, we'll find out who comes out on top next Tuesday. Dan, thanks so much. Thank you. That's CPR's Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce speaking with me about the Pueblo mayor's race. Pueblo will become the third city in Colorado to be run by what's known as a strong mayor. Ballots have already gone out to voters. Election Day is next Tuesday. It's an accident waiting to happen. That's what truckers say about a train crossing they drive over every day in Aurora. Their trucks carry thousands of gallons of fuel picked up at a gas pipeline terminal just south of I-70. That's near RTD's A-line track to the airport. Truckers say no local officials took these safety concerns into account when the A-line was built. CPR's Nathaniel Miner investigates. Mark Dorrance has been driving trucks in the Denver area for a long time, 40 years. He hauls gas for Dixon Brothers. Yeah, gas is a lot more complicated than uh, freight hauling. More complicated because it's more dangerous. He often picks up fuel at the Magellan Pipeline Terminal, a giant tank farm in Aurora, just south of Interstate 70. This place here, I've probably been there thousands of times, probably. We pull off I-70 and bump down Chambers Road. Just before we get to the tank farm, Dorrance stops his truck at a set of railroad tracks. One is for freight rail. Those trains don't come by very often. The other is for RTD's A-Line, where trains go by every eight minutes or so. Dorrance remembers when he first noticed the new line. When they put that line in, I'm going, and they were doing test runs, I'm going, this is going to be a problem. And the problem is this. State law says trucks carrying hazardous materials should take the shortest, most direct route in a situation like this. So that means anywhere from 600 to 1,000 hazmat trucks a day come down Chambers Road to the tank farm and then back up again to deliver their load. Truckers worry they'll increase their liability if they deviate from that and get into an accident. Is this a particularly bad situation here? Is this As a- I would say it is. I think it has a potential for a, a real nasty accident. It's on the way out that Doran says the real potential for trouble is. We've left the tank farm and are waiting to turn north back onto Chambers Road. Well, so the the A-line gates just came down, and that muscle car just zipped right through underneath them at 40 miles an hour. Hazmat trucks have to come to a complete stop in front of the tracks before they can go across. And that can leave their trailer hanging out, blocking the intersection. Dorrance says there's a big potential here for a collision. You have an explosion and a a fire, and then there there would just be a big hole in the ground out here instead of a rail track. And beyond that, any problems at the Magellan Tank Farm could have a big ripple effect. 
gas stations up and down the Front Range, and even jets at DIA rely on the fuel from there. The plan for the A-Line was decades in the making. The project went through a major environmental impact study back in the 2000s, when RTD reached out to businesses along the A-Line to hear their concerns. RTD's Joe Christie says the truckers should have made their case back then. Given their concerns, I think that should have been brought up during the early preliminary planning and design. But the trade group that represents trucking companies says they were never notified. Greg Fulton is with the Colorado Motor Carriers Association. Were we aware that they were considering like an at-grade crossing or something like that? No. State regulators signed off on the Chambers Road crossing. But according to a Public Utilities Commission spokesman, RTD never mentioned all the hazmat traffic in their application. Still, he said the appropriate safety measures have been put in place. But federal regulators apparently aren't as confident. The Federal Railroad Administration is mostly closed because of the government shutdown and did not respond to an interview request. But an internal FRA document identified Chambers Road as a, quote, high-risk crossing. They want local officials to figure out a solution. Joe Christie with RTD says they're trying. A series of meetings led to an independent report. It still isn't finished, but a draft recommends outbound hazmat traffic be rerouted. Now, we've stepped up and provided our findings to everybody, and we're trying to address everybody's concerns. That new route needs improvements. They'd likely cost millions, but there's no set number yet, and no one wants to pay for them. We're held to what has been approved in our environmental impact statement, and we, we don't have authority to, to go outside of those bounds. Joe Christie still maintains the train is safe, but Greg Fulton with the Truckers Association is skeptical. He says the situation is far riskier than it needs to be. I don't ride the A-line, and I don't encourage my family to at this time. All the parties involved, from RTD to the city of Aurora, say they are still working toward a solution. State Representative Dominique Jackson of Aurora says it's an urgent matter. Something has to be done, and I would agree that something has to be done relatively quickly. But even so, she says it would be very difficult for the state to find money for a fix. So in the meantime, trucks will keep crossing the tracks. Hundreds of times every day. CPR's Nathaniel Miner reporting, and he joins me now in the studio. Nathaniel, you say there's the potential for an explosion, a bad accident. Have there been any incidents yet that came close to that? Well, I, I didn't hear about any incidents with the A-line itself. But if you um, remember back to the piece, uh, how trucks have to come to a complete stop before mm-hmm. they go through the tracks. So Greg Fulton with the Truckers Association says that, that in particular, causes a number of close calls, both from tankers nearly being rear-ended to cars zipping around trucks kind of in an unsafe manner. But yeah, overall, nothing major has happened yet. So why did these truckers decide to come forward now about their concerns? Um, It sounds like it's been happening for a while. Yeah, so they uh, went to RTD back in 2015, so what, three and a half years ago now. Um, And they've been, you know, having private talks and trying to figure out a solution. But the truckers felt like it wasn't going anywhere. They said meetings hadn't happened for a while And so they saw their next option as going to the public and and getting their attention. And that's why they called me. So what sort of reaction have you heard? Uh, So the the truckers say they've heard uh, from a number of state legislators in the last day about this. So maybe we'll see something happening there. Uh, One RTD board member I spoke with, she said she got a few calls from constituents about it. Um, So 
we'll see. I think time will tell. Uh, I'll be keeping my eye on it, and I'll let you know if I hear anything big. Thanks, Nathaniel. You're welcome. CPR's Nathaniel Miner reporting on concerns involving trucks that carry fuel. They cross RTD's A-line track in Aurora each day. When we come back, the legacy of Rattlesnake Kate. She's been reborn thanks to a visionary musician in Colorado. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. In the newest episode of The Playlist League, a new podcast from CPR's Open Air, host Jeremy Peterson, Alicia Sweeney, Bruce Trujillo, and me, Jesse Witten, compete to build the ultimate New Year's playlist. We're finally able to restart. We're finally able to... But of course, time is a construct. What's not? <laughs> Do we want to get into that? Yeah, we're going to build a playlist. The Playlist League. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. There are lots of things to see at the National Western Stock Show happening in Denver right now. That includes watching sheep get sheared. We wondered if the sheep like it. Yeah, I've got some ewes that I think really enjoy the vibration. The clippers a lot of times would be running the shears down their backbone and they'll start kicking, kicking their back leg like a dog does when they... When it feels good when you're scratching them. Yeah. That was Bob Schroth, a sheep farmer from Strasburg, Colorado. He was at the National Western Stock Show doing sheep shearing demonstrations. The stock show runs through Sunday, January 27th. Denver native Neela Pekarek spent eight years as a cellist for the band The Lumineers. Her first solo album, Rattlesnake, is out tomorrow. The album's based on the legend of Rattlesnake Kate, a Greeley woman who allegedly killed 140 rattlesnakes in 1925. Rattlesnake Kate, known Kate Slaughterback, got a nickname when she was looking for ducks and then a rattlesnake attack. She saw just one snake, then two, then ten, pulled out a twenty-two rifle, and the massacre began. Before too long, she had no bullets left, grabbed a sign right out of the ground, and clobbered them to death. Neela Pekarik, welcome back to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Briefly run us through this legend. What happened in 1925? Yes, um, so Kate McHale was out gathering these wounded ducks to bring home for dinner um, on horseback with her three-year-old son. And she went to open this gate and encountered a rattlesnake. And her, I guess, maternal instincts kicked in to protect her son. And she shot this snake with her rifle. And this awoke many other snakes in the surrounding area. And uh, legend has it, she ran out of bullets quickly. And so she plucked a no hunting sign from the ground and bludgeoned 140 snakes to death. And it took her two hours. But she walked away dehydrated and exhausted, but relatively unharmed. <laughs> Why would there have been so many rattlesnakes in this area? I've had this question, too. And uh, so it happened in October. And so it's it's guessed that they were migrating south for the winter, somewhere warmer. You came across this legend when you were a student at the University of Northern Colorado. When did you get the idea to turn it into music? 
Yeah, um, I, I stumbled upon it as a college student at the Greeley Historical Museum. And it wasn't until many years later that I really took a dive into songwriting. Um, it was just a, a time I was looking for a creative outlet. And I, I honestly kind of wrote that first song as a joke um, to kind of just make some friends laugh. And it got really carried away and I stopped joking about it. <laughs> When we spoke to you uh, last, you were in the early stages of putting this whole album together, um, and you were still with the Lumineers. You left the band in October. Was it a difficult decision to leave? It was a difficult decision, but it was time, um, and I felt ready. I gave eight years to that project and feel so grateful to have had the opportunity. Um, but I was really ready to kind of embrace my songwriting skills and to be able to sing and um, have a little more of my own identity in my music. What was different about trying to put out a solo album? It's a totally different skill set. Uh-huh. It is. Um, you know, I'm I'm trying to lean into my leadership skills and I put a band together to, um, locally and, um, you know, it's it's more pressure in some ways, but it's, some, you know, it becomes your baby. So it's really um, something you want to be working on and, and give a lot of your time to. Um, songwriting can be such a personal experience. Um, did it feel that way with this, even though you were writing from someone else's perspective? Absolutely. And it was sort of a sneaky way to write about my own baggage because you can kind of write through this mask of this other person's story. And as I researched her and read these letters she had written and read these articles written about her, I just felt really connected to her story. And I thought, if I feel that way, I bet a lot of other people will, too. I understand that one of the songs on the album, Better Than Annie, references another famous woman from that time. That's Annie Oakley. They called her a sharpshooter, her name up in lies. She won old butlers hot in the crowds each night. But Oakley, she's got nothing on me. So what gave you the idea for this song? You know, it came from a place where, as I told this story about Rattlesnake Kate, so often someone would reply with, just like Annie Oakley. And I'm a huge Annie Oakley fan. The first musical I was ever in was Annie Get Your Gun, and she was certainly remarkable, but she was a different person who lived at a different time and had a different skill set. And it made me think how few Western women's stories are known, and that this is just one, and it's from Colorado, where I'm from, and... Um, you know, I just really wanted to showcase the fact that there's more than one way to be a woman in the West, and there's more stories to tell than just Annie Oakley's. You mentioned that you were able to reflect on some of your own personal baggage through this album. What are some examples of that? Yeah, I mean, I think a song like Perfect Gown is a good example. Um, you know, Rattlesnake Kate was known for this dress that she had made from the snake skins. And I think a lot of times as women, we're summed up by what we look like and what we wear. And especially as a musician, I've often felt, you know, I've spent so much time crafting how to play the cello and learning to sing and songwrite. And so often um, my compliments from people, which... I guess I should just be grateful their compliments, but are often about my appearance and um, it kind of belittles the things that you've worked so hard to craft. Um, and so that song sort of has two two sides to it. Hmm. 
Did the whole process of making the album take longer than you thought? Making the record, um, it was kind of in a lot of chaos because I was touring nonstop with Lumineers, and so I would fly off of wherever we were on tour. At one point, it was Latvia, mm. <laughs> and I flew to Portland and dove right into the studio um, just because I knew we would be done with our tour and I would have a short amount of time, you know, at a time that I wasn't sure whether I'd stay with the band or not. Um, what took a long time, though, was the uh, shopping it around to labels and figuring mm. out how to put this record out because it's kind of strange. <laughs> and, it's sort of the business of it. Yeah, finding a good home for a record that's a little bit out of the box. And I feel like we found a great home at S-Curve Records where I they get what I'm trying to do. <laughs> I understand you also perform with barbershop quartets. Yes. Um, how'd you get into that? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Um, that's sort of my, my main love in the music realm. But um, my high school choir teacher, Darren Drown, he teaches at Grandview High School now. He taught at Overland at the time. But he was the director of the Big Men's Barbershop Chorus for a long time. They're called Sound of the Rockies. And um, in high school, as a choir student of his, I would babysit for his kids while Mm -hmm. he went to these barbershop competitions so that the wives of the quartet could watch and I'd go along as their traveling nanny in exchange for voice lessons. And so quickly I left the role as the nanny because I got too into the competitions and then formed my own quartets. And I'm still very active um, in both Sweet Adelines, which is the Women's Society for Barbershop, um, and the Barbershop Harmony Society. Now, we should say that next month there'll be a stage adaptation of your album. Mm -hmm. It'll be featured in the New Play Summit hosted by the Denver Center for the Performing Arts. Um, What will that look like for you? Yeah, um, this is an absolute dream come true. I think when I first started writing these songs, I would have loved to have written a musical, but I didn't think I had any of the tools or skills. Um, And so with the luck of a great agent and the support of Chris Coleman, the new artistic director at the DCPA, Mm. um, they've provided a space for us to create a musical production out of this. So I've been working with a great script writer, Karen Hartman, and we'll have two weeks of workshopping rehearsal time with um, access to actors in a space. Chris Coleman will direct, and we'll do a performance of whatever's ready um, at Mm. the end of the summit. How is working on a stage adaptation been different? It's so different. Um, I love theater and I, you know, grew up a theater kid and studied musical theater at UNC for a little bit, but theater is so collaborative and I love that about it because, you know, your brain can only do so much and the things you're good at and when you bring that with someone else's ideas, um, it just can be something really amazing. So it's been a really cool process so far. Now, this is all based on Kate McHale, Rattlesnake Kate. Um, How do you think she'd react if she were still alive to having an album and then a play based on her life? (laughs) I hope she'd be supportive. I know that she was a person that liked her privacy, um, and I would love to have gotten her blessing on this, but I hope she would know it's all in admiration and complete just... You know, I'm so in awe of her and the way she lived her life. Do you have your next project in mind? I'm always writing songs a little bit, you know, and I I did love the process of writing a concept album and kind of having those restraints a little bit. Um, But we'll see uh, as as that progresses. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Colorado's Neela Pekarik is the former cellist for the Lumineers. Her first solo album, Rattlesnake, goes on sale tomorrow. She's also working on a stage adaptation with the Denver Center for the Performing Arts. Here's another song from her new album. It's called Western Woman. Up at dawn My face. 
That's our show for today. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Thanks for joining us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.